Welcome to another episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast, built to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. The 2013 EFCA Theology Conference focused on the topic of human sexuality. On this episode of the podcast, we share a helpful, challenging, and thought-provoking message from that conference by Dr. Stan Jones titled, Science, Social Science, and Sexual Orientation. Dr. Jones serves as Professor of Psychology and Core Studies at Wheaton College. I want to talk to you about uh, science and the moral debate about homosexuality. Science is only one of the many challenges, and thankfully you have wonderful experts in Rob Gagnon, uh, in Wesley Hill, in Ben Mitchell that can help you with all these. Um, uh, When I lecture on this, I summarize the major challenges facing the church as fivefold. One is the, the, the call to love and acceptance, the, the, the uh, argument that the church's fundamental role is to love people into the kingdom and that if we do not accept gays and lesbians on their terms, that we are violating Jesus' call of love. Uh, a second argument is the supposed silence of Scripture, the silence of Christ himself and the silence. This is what Ben was referring to with the contextualization argument, that when you actually understand Scripture in its context, what you realize is that Scripture actually doesn't address the current issues that we're dealing with today. Therefore, Scripture is actually silent. We're misunderstanding Scripture if we think that it says anything to this. Third is that the church has been witness to new ethical truth that has emerged during, its, during the life of the church. The church, once upon a time embodied in Israel, did not accept Gentiles, but then there was the revolution that we have in the book of Acts. Then later there was a, there was an, a revolution in our understanding of, uh, of uh, slavery. There was an understanding in, in the role of women and the value of women, that women were no longer treated as subordinate chattel property but were elevated to recognizing their being made in the image of God too. And most recently, divorce. And in light with those that kind of new ethical revolutions, we have new ethical truth regarding gays and lesbian individuals. The fourth uh, challenge is the argument that's just like in the books of, book of Acts where works of, the, works of the Spirit broke out, evidence of the Spirit broke out in the Gentile church, so too you're seeing an emergence of the Spirit in, in gay and lesbian context, and that to deny that is to deny this new work of the Spirit. Now, I think there are effective, compelling answers to every one of these. What's remarkable is these arguments have not really changed much in the last three decades when I've been tracking this argument, but the same arguments get recycled again and again and again, and they need to be addressed. But the fifth and really powerful argument is that we see new truth from science that challenges biblical understandings. Before I get into this subject, I hope you don't mind, I hope it's not self-indulgent to give you a a little brief autobiography of how I got into this uh, mess, if you will, when I had that word. Um, There was a moment, through a series of odd circumstances, I was... Uh, drew the short straw of teaching a human sexuality class in the graduate program in clinical psychology at Wheaton College. And uh, I had never set out to teach a course in human sexuality. I did not think of myself as expert in human sexuality. But you really begin to learn a subject when you have to teach it. And I began to confront, even back then, I was using a textbook by mainline authors, Masters and Johnson, the famous Masters and Johnson, who participated in, in creating the field of sex therapy out of nothing and were instrumental to the sexual revolution. And even back then, in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, you were already seeing research being used towards the liberalization of social attitudes. And so I was using a text with Christian students where cohabitation was praised on the basis of empirical science. And when I went back and said, gee, that's, that really doesn't make sense to me as a Christian, and I went back and read the actual studies, what I oftentimes found is the studies said exactly the reverse. But the science was being, was being uh, cherry-picked for nuggets. It was being twisted. It was being read, read through ideological lenses. And I, I discovered a bit of this in the area of homosexuality as well. And I, had a, I remember a moment where I thought, I should write something about this. This frustrates me. This angers me. This is not right. I should write something about this. And then I had a revelatory moment. What are you, nuts? <laughs> you know, I'm a psychologist. I'm going to get ridden out of the American Psychological Association on a rail. My, my goal of bringing honor to Wheaton College and, and being a good witness to Christ is going to be run shipwreck on this. And I, I, I just realized that you, you really would have to be nuts to do this, to write something on this. But I made a big mistake, and that is that I prayed about it. Um, 
So I literally remember a moment where I prayed, you know, Lord, I'm not going to do anything about this. If you want me to do anything, if you want me to write anything in this area, you're going to have to send me a telegram. You're going to have to bludgeon me over the head to do something with this. Fast forward six months, and by the way, I'm not a very charismatic individual. This stuff doesn't happen to me very often. Six months later, the phone rings. I'm in my office. Uh, the man introduces himself. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a conservative Methodist pastor here in the Midwest. We conservative Methodist pastors are being bludgeoned by our liberal bishops, our seminary professors, towards acceptance of, of gays and lesbians. And uh, the bludgeon that's being used most powerfully against us is science. We've organized a conference of conservative Methodist pastors, and we need help. We have a wonderful theologian, Richard Loveless from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, which wonderful pastoral theologian. He's going to speak. We've got the theology covered, but we need a scientist. Would you come and speak? And I said, you know, I really wish you well. I've never written anything in that area. Don't have any intent to write anything in that area. I pray that, you know, stay warm, be filled, uh, you know, good luck, uh, and hung up. And I thought, I dodged that bullet. A half hour later, the phone rang again, and this guy said, look, I really wasn't honest with you. We, had a li- we came up with only eight people that were even conceivable as speakers. I don't even know how you landed on the list, but you're last on the list. Everybody else has said no. If you don't say yes, the conference falls apart. So I am asking you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Literally. And... And everything that I've done in this area since then has been the fallout of that. Richard Lovelace took the paper that I hastily assembled in five weeks and said it was the best distillation of science he had heard anywhere. He rushed it into publication with Christianity Today where he was on the list, and that led to the invitation to be a consultant with the Presbyterian Church and to speak to the Lutheran bishops of America and to debate at the Episcopal General Convention. And it's just been one series of, of odd things after another. Uh, so that's the background, and this has been a preoccupation of mine. So why engage science? Um, let me mention two, two possible, I guess I'm just going to have to mash this thing. There we go. Um, one, one way, one question that's, that some Christians, either with sophistication or not, not sophistication, approach the question of the relationship of science to this question, is they want to approach it from a natural theology perspective or natural ethics that presumes that reason can lead to a consensus apart from revelation. So there's a desire among conservatives to bolster the argument against gay marriage by developing a cons- convincing empirical case that, it, that gay marriage will not be good for the country or not be good for individuals. There's a desire to produce uh, compelling empirical evidence that homosexuality is bad for people. So the method is inductive. There's a belief that, that apart from special revelation, we can work in this direction. And the goal is to establish homosexual conduct as wrong or right. Some people use it in the opposite direction as well to try to, to get in that direction. I don't lean in that direction. Um, I, I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a worthy calling to look at the empirical science, but I approach it from a, from a different set of pres- presumptions, which are that, oops, <laughs> there, there we went. Sorry. I'll get used to this eventually, I think. There we go. I think, of, I think of our engagement with science in terms of an apologetic defense of the, real, re, of the revealed ethic. Science and ethics are not disconnected. They are connected because God's world is a seamless unity. God is real, and, uh, and the world he creates is functions according to his rules. I think there's a resonance between special revelation and general revelation. I think there's a, there's a tremendous interface Christians, the way we interpret special revelation is, interpre- is in influenced by what we discover from the fruits of science. Investigation of science is really important, but it's not sort of a one-to-one correspondence. And I don't think you can simply bootstrap yourself up from an ethic. So when I approach this, I, I, I limit myself to the question of does science disprove the, the ethic that Scripture teaches rather than trying to positively prove the ethic. And so what we see in these two methods is the two different questions. Natural theology asks, does science prove or validate natural ethics? 
But the, what I, the way I'm approaching it asks a different question. Does science disprove or somehow invalidate the revealed ethic? And so you'll see that in the, in the approach that I try to take. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to, I'm going to give you sort of a whirlwind tour of some part of the field of scientific assertions to try and familiarize you with these, issue, with these issues. So I want to acknowledge that there are questions that I'm not going to deal today. Here are the big five that I think are most uh, compelling today. These are the five that I addressed in my First Things article. And uh, if you want that reference, it's available free online. It's in the middle of page 42 on the reference list, so you can find the reference there. Um, I think the big five that are being thrown at the church today is the argument empirically that being gay is just as healthy as being straight, that sexual orientation is a biological determined given, environmental variables contribute nothing, and therefore there's no moral issue here to grapple with. Thirdly, that sexual orientation cannot be changed, and the attempt to change it is intrinsically harmful. If you can't change it, it can't be a moral any, anything that would require moral action on the person's part. Fourthly, that homosexual relationships are equivalent to heterosexual relations empirically, and therefore if, you, if, you're, if you're evaluating relationships by any kind of empirical rational standard, we don't have a basis on which to make a, a reasoned judgment. And then finally, a particularly psychological assertion that identity, human identity, our deepest identity, is properly grounded in sexual orientation or gender identity. I'm only going to focus on number two and three in this talk. There's just too much science. It's too fascinating. And uh, there's just too many things to discuss here. And uh, so uh, you'll, you'll probably have your brains full by the time I get to the end of this, these slides. So I want to first mention how do we, how do we, uh, uh, respond, how do we deal responsibly with science? We, 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 to respond to scientific to claims that science says, we have to do two things, I think. We have to ascertain what are the real findings of science, never accepting press release science or, or scientific reports, and we have to critique those studies with great care. And then secondly, we have to examine carefully the logic by which the findings of science are applied to the moral questions. Um, I get called by reporters all the time, the latest study has come out, and I, and I, I, I feel like a slacker because I'm, I'm not always able to answer reporters' questions, but I absolutely refuse to have a reporter say, here's what the latest science has found, what do you think? Because I haven't read the study. I don't know the methodology. It would be inappropriate to respond when I don't know the science. This most recently happened when in uh, December, this just this most recent December, the latest hot theory about epigenetics about in homosexuality, which I will cover in this lecture, uh, came out and it got massive uh, co uh, coverage in the media. And uh, I have not been in a place to comment on it until now in this lecture. So I'll be mentioning that. But let me give you a, a great example. The uh, finding about gay fruit flies, the manufacture of gay fruit flies in, in 2005. A scientist twisted some genes in some male fruit flies and created gay fruit flies. Um, this was created quite a sensation, and uh, here's a representative quote from the Human Rights Campaign, a major uh, advocacy group for gay and lesbian causes. Science is closing the door on right-wing distortions. The growing body of scientific evidence continues to refute opponents of equality who maintain that sexual orientation is a choice. So from fruit flies to social policy. Uh, similarly, a, uh, Michael Weiss, the chairman of the Case Western Reserve Department of Biochemistry. This study will take the discussion of sexual preferences out of the realm of morality and put it into the realm of science. Quite a sweeping judgment based on uh, an interesting little study. But uh, to, to examine, to understand the import of this study, there are a num any number of things that needs to be said, and I, I'm not going to go into a full critique of the fruit fly study, but just t two interesting things. First of all, I, ha I hate to disappoint anybody, but from a scientific perspective, humans aren't fruit flies. Uh, specifically, f fruit fly reproductive behavior is highly scripted by genetic, by genetic wiring. They follow a very distinct script, quite a different from, the, from human patterns, and they were, in fact, able to create... Uh, uh, gay fruit flies, um, and, uh, and, and do so quite convincing that, convincingly, uh, but that it has practically no application to human, uh, human sexual orientation. There was an interesting part of the study, when you actually read the details of the study, that was never reported in the media, however. That is, when they took five or six gay fruit flies and put them in a jar with several hundred heterosexual male fruit flies, 
suddenly all the heterosexual male fruit flies began acting gay too. In fact, they, the, uh, the researcher talked about the creation of a virtual conga line of male fruit flies having sex with each other as a result of the sort of frenzy of sexual activity that they resorted. So in many ways, the study was a more convincing uh, evidence of environmental causation of homosexual behavior than it was of genetic causation of homosexual behavior. But of course, that never made it into the media. So as we think about human research on homosexuality, though, what are the great weaknesses of this homosexuality research? And this is this is sort of boiling down a lot of experience with a lot of studies over many years. The great, great weakness of homos- in almost all homosexuality research is the inability to identify a representative sample of gay or lesbian or bisexual persons. The inability to identify a representative sample. If I'm going to make a definitive judgment, for instance, about the social attitudes of Americans today, I could do a survey right here in this room and a, a sample of 200, 250 is a pretty significant sample. And I could, I could survey this group and say, now I can talk about the political attitudes of Americans. But, of course, I'd be skewered in the public uh, sector in, 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 on any close examination because this group is not representative of America broadly. So how do you get a representative sample of gay and lesbian individuals when such individuals are first statistically infrequent? The best studies suggest that less than 1% of the population, in terms of full identification as gay, less than 1% of males and less than 1% of females are fully identified as gay and lesbian. Uh, So so you throw out a net trying to catch uh, 3,000, which is a huge sample in social scientific research. By probability, you're only going to catch 40 or 50 individuals. Are those individuals representative? So to, there's been a couple of studies recently that have actually been large enough to begin to look at poss- the possibility of having a representative sample. There was one study that cobbled together 30,000 subjects, another that cobbled together 60 and 80,000 th- subjects. And so we're beginning to see some interesting results from those research, but statistical infrequency is a problem. But, but even large samples doesn't solve another problem, which is uh, which, uh, with getting a representative sample is that is the definition of who counts. Is it the people who feel same-sex attraction but don't act on it? Is it only the people who act on it? Is it only people who identify? What about the person who's in the closet, out of the closet, halfway in in the closet? What about out of the closet and now back in the closet? I mean, who actually counts as gay? We we struggle with these definitional issues. And uh, one of the most frustrating things that I see in the social science and medical research is often the case that uh, studies that don't fit the current ideology are often dismissed based, based on how the definitions were made when, in fact, there's absolutely no consensus in science about how to make the definitions in the first place. Everybody, to do a study, has to come up with a definition and take a stab at it. And finally... Um, this, lead, this lack of a sample problem, this, this sample problem creates severe problems with volunteer bias. A lot of the studies that I'm going to talk about that are so important in shaping public attitudes were ones where in order to get subjects, the researchers went out to the local gay and lesbian advocacy groups in their area and generated subjects, often with the, the gay advocacy groups, knowing what the hypotheses were for the study in the first place leading to the possibility of recruitment bias. The worst example of this is a study that I won't even, bo- I won't even bother to describe in, in detail, but um, it turns out that this person generated a sample of 10,000 individuals, and he did so by lecturing at PFLAG, the Parents and Friends of Le- uh, Lesbians and Gays. And the, it turns out the researcher was lecturing for years about the theory before turning to PFLAG and distributing questionnaires through PFLAG to generate the sample of 10,000 subjects. Talk about sample bias. But this is, this course, never talked about in, in the broader research. So my, one of my first major area of focus is the issue of biological causation. Whoa. Sorry, that just went, that just went all the way back to the beginning. Sorry, getting used there. Oh, oops. Sorry. Okay, so ideology of homosexuality. Sexuality is biologically determined, right? Now let, me, let me just a, a brief bracket here. 
I'm going to be very critical of science. I've already, in a sense, been critical of the current status of science, but I want to make it crystal clear. I believe in science, and you ought to, too. Science is one of the great artifacts of human culture. It's a great residual of the image of God in us, of being able to reason, to reason after God, to seek truth. Science is progressive in its best. Science has been misused, but we need to separate criticism of misused science from criticism, criticism of science generally. And to be even more pointed, I think that even the science that's been highly ideologically driven has come up with findings that Christians ought to pay attention to, and there's been enough findings in certain areas to suggest that some of our simplistic assumptions in parts of our conservative Christian community, such as that biology plays zero part, need to be challenged and revised. And so we need to pay attention to science. We just need to pay attention to it with sophistication and care. So the argument that is, is biologically determined uh, is, has been a big part. You oftentimes have it thrown at you. You can't pass moral judgment because people have no choice. Uh, this came, I think, uh, to, this has been percolating into public consciousness, but in one moment, never more powerfully, I think, than 1991, more than 22 years ago, this was the cover of Newsweek magazine. Is this child gay? When you read the article, this was clearly a rhetorical question. The thrust of the argument was, of course, a child is either gay or straight from the beginning. And two major findings were trumpeted in that study, and I want to briefly talk about the evolution of those studies and research that followed them to give you an example of the way that science progresses, science corrects, whether we're aware of it or not, and also to give you a sense of what the real findings are. The first study that was, uh, that was the, uh, the focus, the first of two studies that was the focus of this article, um, I hope you all can read that, um, <laughs> Uh, was a, the difference in hypothalamus uh, the, between gay and straight men, a, si a study by Simon LeVay. Simon LeVay is a brilliant neuroscientist. He was, he was recently separated from the Salk Institute at the time of this study. Um, Simon LeVay is gay. He had recently gone through the death of his long-serving uh, long partner. He was grieved. He wanted to do something to stop societal oppression against gays. He decided to do a biological study, and so he did a, an autopsy study where he compa compared the brains of gays and straights. And what he claimed to have found was a difference in the anterior, in the, the INAH3, the interstitial nucleus of the anterior hypothalamus area 3. I'm just, please make a careful note of that. Just kidding. Um, now, a little bit of background about brain studies. There's been a pattern, brain studies particular to homosexuality, there's been a pattern of publicized findings that are never replicated. Replication is crucial in science. Secondly, brain differences may or may not be genetic. Genes do directly impact brain structure. Hormones impact brain structure. Pharmacology impacts brain structure. A hammer to the head impacts brain structure. Act, choices and actions influence brain structure. The more the neuroscience has progressed, the more we understand the plasticity of the human brain. It's, the plasticity is absolutely stunning. And so brains change for lots of reasons. Thus, brain differences may be either cause or effect of behavioral and psychological differences. And the hypothalamus, where he focused, requires some sexual, uh, regulates some sexual behavior and other functionings. So LeVay reported that... LeVay reported that the INH3 of heterosexual females was significantly smaller than that of heterosexual males, and that on average, the INH3 of homosexuals was more like that of the heterosexual females and significantly smaller for, than for heterosexual females. So this spot in the brain was more feminine than masculine for gays. But there were problems with, gays, with LeVay's studies that were not widely discussed. First of all, his method of classification. What basically happened is if a, a person was presumed heterosexual unless it was explicitly noted in their file that they were gay. These were, these were brains that were harvested for autopsies in San Francisco in the, 1970, in the 1980s at the height of the HIV uh, epidemic. So individuals who died of HIV at that time, if, it wasn't, if, they, if, for instance, they were married and it was not noted that they were gay, they were classified as heterosexual, which may be highly problematic. Secondly, as I already mentioned, the brain differences may or may not have been genetic. 
Thirdly, the brain differences may either be the... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong slide. Many subjects, heterosexual and homosexual, had died of AIDS. Many of those who had died of AIDS had been treated with adrenergic, in other words, testosterone-like drugs. And we don't know that what the influence is on brains. You know, you know from the recent publicity about, uh, about Lance Armstrong that testosterone-like drugs sometimes shriek, sh- shrink the testes in a male, and they may have similar impact on ma- masculine-oriented aspects of the brain. And these re- reports actually circulated for years that, of failures to replicate, but, none, but replicate, failure to replications are often never published. But finally, something decisive was published uh, almost a decade after, well, a full decade after LeVay's study, and that was a study by William Bine that was published in 2000 and a follow-up in 2001. Bine did much more, uh, Bine, an equally esteemed neuroscientist, did a much more careful sampling and came up with much more equivalent samples than, uh, than LeVay did. He replicated that, in fact, the INAH3 of heterosexual females is different than heterosexual males, and determined that the size difference was due to something particular, that is, that males had more neurons in this region than did females. So what did he find with homosexuals? Uh, Boy, I don't know why that... Sorry. Bein found that homosexual males were intermediate between uh, heterosexual females and heterosexual males in terms of the raw size of this area, and they were not significantly different from either, each other. But most importantly, Bein found that homosexual... I'm not touching this. <laughs> Bein found that homosexual and heterosexual males had the same number of hormones. In other words, the major difference between males and females... In this case, the homosexual males were identical to the heterosexual males. They had the same number of neurons in that part of the brain. And Bein could not explain the difference in size of the slight reduction that was a non-significant factor. So Bein's conclusion was that he had not replicated LeVay's famous studies. I want to tell you that that LeVay's... Would it be better for me to just simply say next? Because it's, it's jumping around... Okay. Uh, forward. One more. Bein found that sexual orientation cannot be reliably predicted on uh, the size of the INH alone. Next. And co- fur- further concluded that you mean, uh, sex-related differences may also emerge later in development as the neurons and, uh, that survive become part of functional networks. The difference in volume could be attributed to a reduction in neuropil within the INAH as a result of postnatal experience. In other words, Bein is raising a possibility that is wanting to be denied at this part that it may be as a result of choices or experience that people have that brains actually wind up being different. And this is a repudiation of the broad interpretation of what Bein, uh, what uh, uh, LeVay had been finding. So this is an example where a brain difference washes out, and yet LeVay's original study continues to be cited again and again and again as decisive, even though it's been uh, effectively renounced in terms of the scientific literature. Next slide. Well, we could talk about gay sheep. We could talk about gay fruit flies. I'll, I'll restrain myself, as much fun as that might be. Next slide. I want to talk about one of the studies that has had the biggest impact of any single scientific study, and that is the genetic study of male sexual orientation that was published in the same month that, William LeVay, that Simon LeVay's study was published. Next. This is a study of behavioral genetics, and the, 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 you have to understand, to understand the study, you have to understand the logic of behavioral genetics, which is really straightforward. The, if, 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 if eye color is genetically determined, then if I'm an identical, if I have an identical twin, my identical twin is going to have the same eye color as me. 100% genetic determination. The further adrift someone is genetically, you go to a sibling and then you go to someone from the general population, you're going to have less and less probability of genetic similarity on this physical variable. If a psychological behavior is genetically caused, then you're going to have the same pattern that of the closer the genetic relationship, the closer people are going to be on that psychological variable. Next slide. So Bailey and Pillard did a study where they went to the gay community in Chicago, recruited uh, 
people, they were, they talked about, they were doing a, a family study of homosexuality and they recruited identical twins, fraternal twins who, who are, are the same as siblings, non-twin brothers, these are all males, and adopted brothers. And this is what they found. If, if people were identical twins, they had a much higher likelihood of both being gay. 52% proband-wise concordance. And let me point out to you, this, this, this is the, the, the key thing to look at. 29 out of 56 is what, uh, is what, Leve- what uh, Bailey reported. But when you go to uh, fraternal twins, the percentage drops down to 22%, 9%, and 11%. So this is exactly the pattern you would expect if, if homosexuality is genetically loaded. Next slide. So on that 29 out of... Other direction. That's the wrong direction. Keep going. Oh, there we are. The, um, this is the 29 out of 56. This is roughly what the public thinks Bailey found. Every blue figure represents a gay individual, and these are pa- sibling pairs, identical twins. The blacks are, are straights, and so these are ones who don't match. And the public generally thinks that what, what Bailey found was 29 twin pairs that matched and 27 that did not for a total of 56. Next slide. In fact, it's not just the public that believes this. It's also scholars. Jeanette Sibley Hyde is perhaps the, one of the most respected sexologists in the world. She reports this in her textbook. Generally, the results from these studies, uh, in this case, uh, are, are reported as concordance rates. The percentage of, that's actually a false definition of a concordance, but pay attention to their second quote. He identified 56 gay men and located their identical twin brothers and who were matched, uh, and this is not exactly what Bailey did either. What did Bailey actually do? Next slide. Bailey actually found, and I won't go into the statistics, but there weren't actually 56 twin pairs in Bailey's study. There were actually 41 twin pairs. There are actually 56 gay individuals. There are 56 blue figures in here if you actually count them. And what he actually found was that there were 41 twin pairs that he started with. 13 of the matched twin pairs matched for being gay. There was one triplet trio that was in there, and there were 27 that didn't match. And so you actually only have... 14 groups that match out of 41 sibling pairs, which is a lower uh, matching rate than what you might have expected. But even that doesn't doesn't do justice to the study. Next slide. Because we get to this crucial methodological sample. He got a volunteer bias sample. He recruited from the gay advocacy community of Chicago. And Bailey himself, who's a very strong, staunch gay activist, gay advocate, uh, recognized this weakness in his study, and, and to his credit, he recognized he might have gotten a biased sample, so he said, where can I get an unbiased sample? So he went to the Australian Twin Registry and generated a study that refuted his own earlier study. Next slide. This is what Bailey, Mar- Dunn, and Martin found in 2001. In 2000, I mean. Next slide. Out of, with 27 twin pairs, actually only three Identical twins matched for homosexuality. Now, does this fit, does this fit the public media portrayal of the gay, of the genetic loading of homosexual orientation? Not at all. The public generally thinks that there's a high level of matching. But, uh, this is not what they found. Let me skip two slides, please, to the, skip that one. What, Bailey himself had the scientific integrity, I'm sorry, go back one. Bailey himself had the scientific integrity to report that his new study did not provide statistically significant support for the importance of genetic factors in causing homosexual orientation. And this suggests that concordances from prior studies, his own prior studies, would, uh, were, due to, were inflated due to concordance-dependent ascertainment bias. That means I got a biased sample. And so, um, so he refuted his own study. Now, the problem is... This got no media attention, and nor has the subsequent follow-up studies. Uh, skip two slides, please, to the figures. I'll jump to the, what, the most recent study that came out in 2010. This is a study from the nation of Sweden, a much larger study. Again, a, 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 the Swedish. this time it's the Swedish Identical Twin Bank. They came up with 71 uh, sibling pairings, out of which only seven, only seven matched. One out of ten pairs matched. And so um, they did not find that, uh, that uh, genetics were a very uh, powerful impact. Next slide. They do find, when they study the, the, the heritability of the finding, 
You may have to click it again. There we go. Our results are consistent with moderate, primarily genetic, familial effects and moderate to large effects from non-shared environment. This is a way of saying genetics has some impact, but there's a whole lot of other impact coming from other things that we do not understand. And so um, this is, uh, this is uh, I think, a good scientific finding. I think Christians need to come to grips with the fact that there is a, there's a biological push in the direction of homosexuality for some people. The fact that this exists doesn't mean it's there for everybody. It doesn't mean it's there with a certain force for everybody, but it is there uh, for, um, for some individuals. I'm actually going to have to sli- skip uh, about six or, ten, six or seven slides um, while I'm watching the time. Would you please jump ahead? Keep going until I... That right there. I want to cover the newest study because it made an impact just five or six weeks ago. Did you hear about the impact of epigenetics as opposed to genetics? To understand this study, let me uh, uh, go to the next slide. This is from a study that was published uh, just, as I say, six weeks ago. The, The authors of this study are critical of what they call the direct hormonal hypothesis. In the normal normal pattern of uh, physical development, the simple model is that, that uh, a fetus is born either with XY genes, a male, or XX genes, a female. On the Y gene, there's a specific chromosome called the SRY that expresses. Expresses means comes alive and begins to work in the life of the fetus. This happens within hours of the, of the fertilization of the fetus and uh, begins to develop testes. The testes are already working by the fifth week of gestation and they begin to produce testosterone. The testosterone generated in the fetus produces masculinization. It causes the physical formation of of a penis and and scrotum. It it, uh, begins to masculinize the brain. In the case of females, there is no SRI, and so ovaries develop, leading to low testosterone and the presence of other hormones, which leads to feminization. The authors of this article argue that this is an inadequate model, which is really, they have a fascinating argument. Next slide. Now, I just reached out on the Internet and got a, got a picture of a couple of uh, standard deviation curves. And, uh, and these, these have no bearing on real data. This is just for an example. This is a useful example. But I put, uh, I put these, this uh, title up here. The, imagine that this is, a, this is a distribution of what fetuses are experiencing in terms of amount of, amount of testosterone. Under this curve here, you have the male experience. There are some males, they have done actually assays where they go into both animal, pregnant animals and pregnant humans and ask how much testosterone is circulating in this uterine environment, in this fetus. And they can actually chart that there's quite a, a wider degree of variance. So you have some males that are born that went through uh, having low testosterone and some that had very high testosterone, and there's an average amount in the, in the middle that most uh, of the fetuses experience. Same thing for females. The, the average in, of... A, amount of testosterone for, testosterone for females is markedly different than the amount for males, but there, there are some females that are really, really low on testosterone and some females that are higher, and this dark area is the area where, the, where they, they cross over. So there's, there are f- males who have, more, have less testosterone circulating than some females, and yet there's very little gender confusion when babies are born. You, ha- you have distinct uh, external gonads, uh, external sexual apparatus, it, for uh, like 9,999 9, cases out of 10,000, there's very little confusion. If there's this much variation, why is there so little confusion in the way that the, the, the physical structures turn out? Next slide. Well, they came up with a fascinating hypothesis that, that I think is probably going to have some value. That is, instead of the direct model that I just mentioned up here, they propose what they call an indirect model. That is that this is operating just as the same as up here, but there's a parallel process that they call epimarks. And epimarks are a spin-off of genetic functioning, and it's a, little me- it's, a, it's a biological mechanism that magnifies or suppresses the effect of testosterone. And so the argument is that for a male fetus, there's circulating testosterone, and there's a mechanism that says, if there's testosterone here, I'm going to quadruple it. And if for a, in the case of a female, there's a mechanism saying that if there's X amount of testosterone that's circulating, we're going to cut it in fourth. We're going to suppress it. And this helps to even out the impact of the, of the testosterone on the fetuses. But the, what they're asking the question is, there, there's research emerging 
that these epimarchs, these, uh, these, uh, these exterior functions, misfunction sometimes. And even more remarkably, sometimes these, these epimarch functions are passed down across a generation. So the, the, uh, the researchers are hypothesizing uh, in a fascinating way. They're asking this question. What if there's a very masculine father who is very masculine because he has the epimarch function, had it as a fetus, that magnified testosterone in him as a fetus, what if he passes that on to a, the, a daughter through his sperm in, in, the, in the conception process? What if a, there's a very, very feminine female who suppresses testosterone and passes that on to the, the, uh, her male offspring, the boy that she's carrying in her womb, such that testosterone is suppressed for that boy in a way that he's feminized? So there could be this very unpredictable process. And they argue that, that when you, there's this old argument about evolution that if, if evolution is true, homosexuality makes no sense because homosexuality leads people not to breed. And when you don't breed, you don't pass on genes that should work. And they argue that this is an example where these genes produce enough positive effect in heterosexuals that evolution can ignore these minor deviations that occur when some people get the raw end of the deal by becoming homosexual. Are you with me? So it's a very fascinating, it's a very fascinating argument. There's a, a couple of problems though with this argument. Uh, next slide. The first problem is there's very little, there's no direct evidence for it. Um, I, when I got calls from reporters about this, about this, uh, article, um, you know, it was, what do you think about the new study? This, this great scientific breakthrough. And I, well, I haven't read the study. I'm not commenting, not commenting. I finally got around to reading it. And this is a direct quote from the article itself. We can, although we cannot provide definitive evidence that homosexuality has a strong gen, epigenetic underpinning, we do think available evidence is fully consistent with this conclusion. In other words, we've, we've cobbled together a lot of indirect re- evidence from other areas. We don't have a shred of evidence that this is actually operating in homosexuals, but we're still going to draw the conclusion anyway. Now, that is the way that good science is done sometimes. You come up with good theories that way, but, but you, you don't promote them as truth at this point, and, and this public should not accept them as truth. Next slide. It's also the, the, the strongest indirect that they, evidence that they have um, is, uh, is, is very unreliable in two, two major examples. First of all, they're directly reliant on the assumption that it is a proven fact that, that male homosexuality is transmitted through the mother and female homosexuality is, translated through, is, is, is inherited through the father. And neither one of those things have been really proven. That science is an incredible mess. And most of it is based on extremely distorted samples. So they take that science as a given and say, see, that's consistent with our hypothesis. Secondly, they count on corroboration from data showing greater fecundity of relatives of gays and lesbians. There's this, there's this hypothesis out there that when you track the family trees of gays and lesbians, their relatives have more kids than relatives of people who don't have gays and lesbians in the family. That research, too, is extremely limited. So this assumes pure biological programming of sexual preference. So this is, uh, this is an interesting area. Uh, but it's not absolutely not pr- persuasive yet. Next slide. So I want to just briefly introduce you to um, my conclusion about biological causation is that Christians need to pay attention to biological influences on human life. We are embodied beings. We are finite beings. We are subject to the variances and brokenness of our bodies. It is not at all, I think it likely that there are biological factors that contribute to homosexuality. But homosexuality in truth is such a complex, intertwined, multifaceted phenomenon that there can be many things that contribute and biology is not all of it. As a case study in that, let me talk about some, some uh, psychological causes. Uh, gay advocates oftentimes say there is no evidence that there's any psychological causation. I'm going to show you, show you two. What, next slide. There's a national a study by Behrman and Bruckner, a study of 30,000 U.S. adolescents. Next, next study. Next slide. This is the basic finding. I want to suggest to you they found, they found a condition that predicted higher levels of sexual attraction reliably in their finding, and that was when the individual was born with an opposite-sex twin. In other words, this was a study of boys. The, the group that had the highest incidence of same-sex attraction 
was twin boys that were part of a fraternal twin pair where their co-twin was a sister. You understand the family arrangement? And their hypothesis, this was striking. The, the others were all within a reasonable level of uh, congruence with each other. This one stands out as being remarkably, statistically, powerfully uh, uh, ahead of the group in terms of occurrence of same-sex attraction. And their hypothesis was that this is not biological, but rather that it was, um, that it was uh, because of gender role modeling. And their argument was that parents who have fraternal twins are faced with a conundrum of how do you raise these twins together and yet raise them as distinct genders? How do you emphasize the, the maleness of the boy and the femaleness of the girl when you're fighting to raise the two kids together? Now, interestingly, they actually found something that, that helped to prove that there wasn't a biological factor or a strong biological factor that was contributing, and that is they found a condition that wiped this effect out. The condition that wiped the effect out was when there was an older brother already in the family when, the, when this fraternal twin pair was born. And so a, their hypothesis was that the family, in a sense, knew how to socialize a male because there was an older brother. There was, some, there was someone close for that kid to identify with, and so gender identification would be uh, much superior for that. Um, next slide. Uh, actually, let's, uh, let me jump t- two more slides ahead. I'll s- I want to jump to the next study. Uh, Behrman and Bruckner, and then Frisch and Vid also did a huge study, this time a sample of merely 2 million. Uh, they, they sampled the marriage registries of the nation of Denmark and wanted to know, uh, they looked at, ver- they had a huge trove of demographic variables, and they asked, are any of these demographic variables related to predicting that people will register for same-sex civil unions or marriages? Next slide. What they, oh, I'm sorry, back one. They found, the title of the study was Family Correlates of Heterosexual Homosexual Marriage. Because we do not know how representative men and women in same-sex marriages are of homosexuals in general, our findings should not be used incautiously. I just thought I read that. Next slide. Our analysis provided a population-based prospective evidence that a variety of childhood family experiences bear importantly on both heterosexual and homosexual mating patterns in adults. Examples of variables included being born in urban areas and for men having older mothers, divorced parents, or absent fathers. Now what's remarkable is this is remarkably like the clinical observations of Sigmund Freud. It's remarkably like some of the observations of people in the Exodus movement and others about the type of sexual of uh, things that uh, contribute. Next slide. They argue, they also, well, let's see, I'll, I think I'll skip that. Let me, let me skip that. Um, and, and bring to conclusion this application to the moral debate. So my, my conclusion there on the psychological findings is you find in conservative Christian circles a tendency to argue biological factors do not matter. It's all experience, or worse, it's all choice. Christians have got to move towards a sophisticated model of understanding causation where we acknowledge that biology does contribute, experience does contribute, and choice does contribute. All of these things participate. Culture p- contributes. Everything contributes. Human beings are incredibly complex. Uh, but the contributions of these concrete factors doesn't mean that human choice is inoperative. And thus, the, in terms of the logic of the moral debate, it is really essentially bankrupt to argue that, first of all, it's, it's, it's empirically false that we've somehow proven that homosexuality is completely determined. But even if we did, that wouldn't change the moral question because Christianity's focus is on moral behavior on which humans have choice, not on sexual orientation. Um, next slide. I've, I've been profoundly moved by a quote from Richard Hayes in his book, uh, The Moral Vision in the New Testament. The Bible's sober anthropology rejects the apparently common sense notion that only freely chosen acts are morally culpable. Quite the reverse. The very nature of sin is that it is not freely chosen. That is what it means to live in the flesh in a fallen creation. We are in bondage to sin, but still accountable to God's righteous judgment of our actions. In light of this theological anthropology, it cannot be maintained that a homosexual orientation is morally neutral because it is involuntary. We always have to ask moral questions about the human condition.
Next slide. So in more brevity, you'll be relieved to know, uh, the question of change. The argument is oftentimes made, gays cannot change, and therefore it is, it, it is uh, off the moral charts. It can't, it can't be debated um, morally. Next, next slide. Well, change number one, uh, argue, counter-argument number one, is that change of behavior is always possible. And God holds people responsible for their actions, which they choose, not their proclivities, which many, many of which we did not choose. I don't know many heterosexual men that chose to be interested in women so promiscuously, so easily. Uh, we don't ask for that. It's something that we inherit. It's a moral problem. Uh, one of the first uh, men that I ever met who lived for 13 years in the gay community and had been profoundly transformed. By the time I met him, he, had, he was married. He had five children. Uh, had a productive ministry, was a wonderful Christian brother. And I remember, ask, I remember having a conversation with him and saying, so, wow, you were, t- you were totally healed. He said, I've been profoundly healed. I said, you're totally healed. So you're a total, nor- totally a normal heterosexual now. He said, oh, no. Said, well, what do you mean you're not a normal heter- heterosexual? He said, I wouldn't want to be a normal heterosexual. He said, I've been given a great gift. I still struggle with some homosexual feelings from time to time, but God has given me heterosexual attraction for one person in the universe, my wife. She is the only woman that I am attracted to. I wouldn't want to struggle with the kind of promiscuous lust that I see among my my heterosexual brothers. Uh, So uh, God holds us responsible for the choices that we make. Um, Next next slide. Um, Counter-argument number two, though, is that some people do shift and change. Not everybody. In fact, I'm not even sure that it's common. Uh, but it is possible. Um, jump forward three slides, please. There you go. Um, let me just briefly summarize this, the research study that Mark Yarhouse and I did that transpired almost a, a decade. Uh, it was published first. It, we, we, we followed a group of 98 individ, individuals over six years. We published the midpoint results in this book, Ex Gays, and then we, we were criticized. The, the book got no attention in the scientific community because it wasn't published in a scientific journal. So we fought for two and a half years to get it published in a scientific journal. Finally, in 2011, it comes out in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, and it made no difference. It still got ignored uh, because it goes against the traditional wisdom. Next slide. Just setting this study up, uh, the American Psychological Association, the the, uh, book focused on two questions, is change possible and is the attempt harmful? Next slide. Setting the study up, so uh, a quote from the APA website, so what about these conversion therapies? Their claims are poorly documented. For example, treatment outcome is not followed and reported over time as we need the standard to test the validity of any mental health intervention. We read that quote in the late 1990s, and so we, that's when, what triggered us to do a, the first ever longitudinal study of people attempting to change. Next slide. The American Psychiatric Association said they were concerned about such therapies and their potential harm, so we, 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 that was the reason why we looked at the harm question. Next slide. We decided to, to recruit a group. Uh, next slide. We decided to re- recruit a group of people attempting to change through Exodus International. This proved to be an absolute nightmare. We wanted to recruit a group of 300, 400, 500 people Generally speaking, there's a tremendous suspicion about science because there's been a long track record of people sneaking into Exodus groups, doing research, and then slamming the groups afterwards. There's also a tremendous skepticism about science in some of these, some of these groups. And there's fear about loss of confidentiality. There's innumerable barriers. We fought and scratched for two years to assemble a sample of 98 individuals. Uh, but we were able to follow those, those individuals for six years. Next slide. The, the distinctives of our study, it was prospective. It was starting at the beginning of the change process. It was longitudinal. It followed them over a long period of time. It was at least in some semblance represent, representative of a wide range of people who sought help through Exodus. It, we utilized the best self-report measures of sexual orientation that were prominent in the field. In fact, we used every measure of sexual orientation that had been published in the field in order to make sure we covered every base. It was a reasonably large uh, sample population, and we sampled different Exodus programs. In fact, we sampled 17 different Exodus programs, so we were not limited to any one sample. Next slide. 
the best way to summarize the study in terms of change is the six qualitative outcome groups that we came up with at the end. There were six outcomes, and we asked in, in, in our final six-year report, we actually asked people to self-categorize. We said, we're not going to tell you what we think happened to you. You tell us how you would categorize yourself. And these were the, these were the categories that people chose. There were people who talked about sex that they had converted to heterosexuality. There were people who said, yes, my exodus experience was successful, and my experience is the freedom to live chaste. I've, I've embraced chastity. Uh, there were others who said, you know what, I've made progress, but I'm, not, I'm still fluid, I'm still working on it. This is at the six and seven year mark. These, these people are amazing in their tenacity and courage in pursuing this. When they said, I've made some change, but, it's, but it's not, I'm not where I want to be, I'm not in a stable place. There were people who said, this has not worked, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I'm, I'm just, nothing happened and I'm not sure where I'm going to go. There were people who said, I will not tr- be treated again. The, these are what we call failure and confused. I will not go through this change process again, but I'm not, I haven't embraced gay identity. I, I just, am, I'm just defeated. And then there were people who said, I'm done. I'm embracing gay identity. At the seven year mark, we had about 65 people left out of the group of n- original 98. Next slide. This was the approximate findings we have. The success conversion folks were about 23% of the group. The success chastity group were about 31%. So you can see, by the definition of success, the groups of people that, of people that were left in the study were the majority of the people that were left in the study. The groups that, that was uh, still continuing was smaller. The non-response and failure confused were small groups. And then this is the group that, was fa- that was, had embraced gay identity right here was the largest of the remaining groups. And so this is a remarkable finding. But what about is the question of is change harmful? Next slide. Actually, two slides. One more. Thank you. We basically found no difference. Uh, at time one, they were reporting this much psychological distress. At time two, the people who were continuing to pursue the change process were reporting slightly less distress. But uh, the predictions that they were uh, going to be in bad shape was... Uh, uh, was disproven, and so I hold out from this the argument that some people can change, and that the change, the attempt to change, is not intrinsically harmful. Um, this is a terrifically difficult area. P- when people come to me and say, "Look, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. Should I attempt to change?" I think you have to really ask serious questions about the attempt. You have to ask serious questions about who is going to try to help them. Is that person really professional? Are they responsible? Are they ethical? There have been some crazy things that have done out there, been done out there. Very recently, there was an indictment of, a, of a, actually a Jewish uh, change group in, in New York. It turns out the person who had been running it, who I have actually met before, was a felon who had been convicted in a pyramid screen, scheme, gone to prison, and when he got out, he found a different way to earn a living through running a, a, a change to heterosexuality group. Um, there's been people who've been had ethics charges for uh, sexual intimacies with the people that they're working with. If, I think you should only pursue change if you have somebody reliable and responsible to work with. Even so, the change effort is very difficult. It's very taxing. It's very frustrating. It runs, it runs a lot of risks. But some people are called down that path, and God meets some of those people and produces amazing things in their lives. But there's also a, a growing movement of people who embrace chastity and see that as a way to live in the church. You'll hear from Wesley Hill, a, 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 for, a, a former student from Wheaton and a, a friend of mine who I think represents this, this, uh, this position with integrity and grace. And so um, this is something that we need to work through in our churches. Our churches in many times are failing individuals who struggle with same-sex attraction and don't have any place to go. And uh, the gay community is more than willing to welcome them. So in summary, next slide, is change possible? Yes, to some degree. For some, is, is the attempt to change harmful? On average, it's not, but it can be. Next slide. What are we to do? My, I don't have a firm scientific conclusion to offer you here because the science is always in motion. I would urge that you listen carefully to science, but don't be swayed by press release science. Don't be intimidated by press release science. I've been working in this field for 30 years now, and I I entered this with a great deal of anxiety. I worried that I would stumble across the study that would force me to step away from the clear teaching of Scripture and hence force me to repudiate the doctrine of inerrancy. 
in forcing me to repudiate, in a sense, the reliability of a loving and true God who reveals himself to his people. And I really counted the cost about that. But it's been very interesting to, to be immersed in this area for 30 years and to find nothing in the science that fundamentally overthrows orthodox Christian belief. So I, I want to urge you, brothers and sisters, towards co- uh, courage as you engage the science, courage as you engage this topic, and I'm looking forward to contributing to the, to the contribution more in a subsequent talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.